0: Welcome to The Inclusive Growth Show with Toby Milden. Future-proofing your business by creating a diverse workplace. Hello there. Thank you ever so much for tuning into this episode of The Inclusive Growth Show. I'm Toby Mildon and today I'm joined by Nicola Poole. Nicola and I met ages ago. Um, she's a diversity and inclusion Practitioner. She's worked in retail. She's worked for an executive search firm and we've kept in touch. And now Nicola runs her own consultancy practice. Before we get into the, the thick of the interview, um, I just want to apologise to you because you might hear some background drilling and banging because um, I've moved from London to Manchester into this brand spanking new apartment only to find... Well, I kind of knew this when I moved in, but the the bathroom is not wheelchair accessible, so I've had to rip out this brand new bathroom, which had these like lovely marble tiles and and spend a fortune on putting in a wheelchair accessible bathroom and I'm just going to labor the point for a moment because I think this is just a classic example of um kind of lack of inclusive design um <laughs> in the building industry, so a lot of homes are not particularly wheelchair accessible. Um, And quite often people with disabilities have to spend a lot of money remodeling their their new apartments to make it accessible. So anyway, that's my ranting over, but I just wanted to kind of uh, excuse any drilling and banging so, Nicola, lovely to see you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: lovely to hear you too. And, um, yeah, no, I think it's a well worthwhile rant. And um, um, from, from my end as well, if there's any noise here, it's because the dog's going to get the post from the uh, front door. So yes. uh, we'll, we'll see
0: what we can I do. this is obviously <laughs> like your, your dog barking and, you know, my migrating and banging. It, this is classic uh, working from home during the pandemic uh, sort of situation that a lot of people are finding themselves in exactly isn't it just so Nicola um let's just begin by like can you just let us know a bit about yourself and your background and what you do
1: yeah, thank you. And um, it, I love the phrase that you used, which is an inclusion and diversity practitioner, because sometimes if ever people introduce, I'm sure you feel the same way as an expert. I always find that so interesting because it's one of the most far-reaching topics. I'd love to know anybody who could be an expert in absolutely every facet of the subject. I know we give it our best stab, but it's um, quite wide ranging. But um, it's um, just a bit of background really. Is Yeah, I, I worked in retail for many years. I worked for John Lewis and Wait and actually ran stores within the John Lewis partnership. Um, But it was becoming really apparent to me that there was this big relatively unspoken issue that was emerging for businesses, which was the fact that there was a severe lack of inclusion and diversity. And I was very fortunate at the time to be working in a company that didn't necessarily have a lot of diversity, but had a lot of good ethics and grounding about how it cares for its people. And so my paths kind of led from there. And, um, you know, I've got some good role models out there. And so whilst I'd been an in-house diversity and inclusion practitioner, and as a consultant with Green Park, um, you know, I, I looked to you, Toby, and saw, oh, you know, it's really interesting, the relationship that you can have with companies and people by being independent. Instead, it's a more intimate relationship and able to ebb and flow far more fluidly with um, clients and companies. And so, um, yeah, I set up Good Work Life a year ago. Next week was when the company actually was registered. Yeah.
0: Congratulations. It's your, you know, first birthday. So, I know I
1: feel like I should have some cake
0: <laughs> yeah yeah but it would have to be virtual cake because obviously this is a podcast so we yeah. all we can re- all we can rely on is the the audio so um yeah I'll <laughs> exactly. see if I can get I I could see if I can get like a, a sound effect of cutting into a cake or something like that
1: champagne bottle anything like that sounds good to <laughs> me
0: <laughs> So, one of the things that you've done recently is you've, you've been studying at Henley Business School and and you've got an interest in corporate governance. So, what, what piqued your interest and what have you been studying?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And I guess it's one of the, again, the beautiful things of having a bit more thinking time over the past year for many different reasons, but also kind of off the treadmill and now being able to focus on my development in this space in the areas that I think are important. And what I was hearing from the clients that I was working with was that the conversation around diversity and inclusion was very emergent from the bottom up within organizations. We think about the sophistication now of employee networks. There was a good understanding of what needed to take place in the middle elements of the business, of course, within HR. But I was starting to see teams like procurement teams and commercial teams starting to understand what they needed to do. But if I'm honest, when I was having conversations right up at the top of the business, it seemed to me that the lack of confidence of the executives was that they hadn't necessarily developed their understanding of how this integrates into their role as a board, which is really the environmental, the social and the governance agenda. And the diversity and inclusion piece of the puzzle sits in the middle bit, the social and so whilst I know about d i I was not as well educated around what makes a board function really well. So what I wanted to do was to go on a course that was going to help to educate me in that so I could join up a few dots. And so I'd known many people that had gone through Henley Business School for various different courses, and they run a board directors program, which isn't just for people on boards. It can be for people who might want to become a non-executive in the future or equally is going into a position or perhaps just wants to you know, refresh their understanding of what it takes to be a board member. So that's why I went on the course was to kind of join up my mental dots of my um, expertise with understanding what makes a board function really well.
0: Yeah, because I've heard a lot of people talking about ESG, so environmental, social, and what was the G, sorry?
1: Governance, yeah. (laughs) Governance,
0: of course. Yeah, environmental, social, and governance. And, you know, diversity and inclusion sitting within the the social or the S- Mm of es and g because obviously you've covered the the breadth of es and g i mean how do you see it all fitting together because obviously we you know we focus on diversity inclusion but you know what is the relationship between dni and social and then how does that link in with the the environmental and the governance
1: yeah it's a really good point around that and um, my least area of expertise probably lies in the environmental side of things Um, but when we start to think about the inequalities that come uh, more on a global setting I guess of the ways in which companies and organisations pursue that agenda you can start to join it up then with the social and then also the governance side. The two that I've been mostly focused on as you can imagine are the social and the governance and rather than the E and the S and the G as you said being separate things They are totally intertwined and somewhat, and it's not across the board, but a bit of a gap if you were to pick up annual report and accounts or any form of governance reporting that organisations do, what you can start to see is some organisations are really progressing well in their reporting on their diversity and inclusion, which enables shareholders, employees and the board to hold each other to account for the work that they're doing. But nonetheless, there's still quite a lack of sophistication in that space. And also some of the statements aren't particularly underpinned by facts and stats. They're relatively broad. And so this is some of the progression that can take is for organisations to think about where they've got such good analytics, potentially when it comes to consumers, how can they transfer that into the employee base and to understand whether they truly are being diverse and inclusive using data instead?
0: So what are some of the things that organisations should be measuring and monitoring when it comes to to diversity and inclusion?
1: Mm, It's a really good question, that, because kind of as a starting point, it's not new pieces of data. It's actually looking at the data with a different lens instead so if you really want to understand and if we just focus purely on the employee base because that's the the main crux of it whilst of course there's elements that you want to look at with your consumers your supply chain when it comes to dni if we just think about employees measurements such as who gets a pay increase, who's deemed to be your top talent, what are the engagement scores like of people, who is receiving disciplinaries, and when somebody appeals against a disciplinary, what is upheld and what is dismissed. These are all of the pieces of data that most organisations or large organisations at least have tracked for a number of years now But what you need to do is to shine a different lens on it and analyse that data by different demographics so that you can understand, basically, it's the principle of proportionality. Is there a disproportionate impact or support for any single group of people through those part of the process? So put it simply, if we take something like pay, in the last pay review, did more men receive a pay increase than women, for example?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the kind of things that I talk to my clients about. And I think, I mean, one of the struggles that my clients have, and I don't know if you've come across this yourself, is that they are tracking things like um, numbers of disciplinaries or career progression, attrition and retention and things like that. But they're not doing a very good job at, at measuring diversity. So they're not able to kind of have that diversity filter over the top of the data that they have got collected, have you have you come across that and and kind of any advice on how how we can start to plug that that data gap?
1: Yeah, I found the same thing as you. And some of this is my intuition as opposed to like fact, but I do think that often there's a nervousness about what the data might show. And the minute that the data is produced, then what would people be able to request? You know, over the years, you've seen a greater transparency around all of these types of reporting for pay, for talent, for engagement. But even just if you just take engagement scores from a company, organisations can be a bit nervous about saying this is how our employees feel even if they were a homogenous group, to then start to show that the feeling about how whether they're engaged within the company or not differs by demographic. I think there's a real nervousness about uncovering that information. So I think that's one starting point. The other thing that this conversation has probably been had by many people that have joined you for a chat, Toby, is also like the point around how do we gather the data? I know it's an overused buzzword term at the moment, but the psychological safety that's required for people to know that they can give their demographic data to their organisation in order for it to be monitored and tracked. And of course, you only ever do that on a macro level, you wouldn't want to start tracking an individual and start to understand, well, what's their demographic and what are they doing? But this point around trend analysis can only be done if people give their data up in the first place and so if a company doesn't make people feel safe they are far less likely to give over their demographic information one that is fostering a culture of saying when we gather your data we do right by it and we deal with it ethically they will be far more likely to get hold of it and then they'll be able to do this type of analysis is what I think my experience has been.
0: Yeah my, my experience of, of working with a client was um I think they did two things really well. So first of all, they had a a very good um, internal comms campaign weeks before they actually asked for the data to kind of prepare people. And they addressed a lot of the concerns that people had in FAQs. So things like, how is my data going to be used? Is my data safe and secure? Can I be identified by it? And things like that. And then the other success factor, I think, was that they used an external data collection company. Mm. So I think one of the main concerns is that if the data was being put into the HR system, that that data could get into the wrong hands or be used against somebody. But there was an element of trust by using this kind of trusted third party. And and the agency that they used is a very well-known data collection agency, so, you know, I think people have a high degree of, of trust with it. Yeah. But I think one of the challenges that I, a lot of my clients have is, you know, on one hand, you are collecting diversity data. But on the other hand, it's then how do you marry that data up with things like attrition or career progression, you know, performance management and that kind of thing? So getting the data to talk to each other.
1: Oh, exactly. And that's where it's so interesting you say about using the external organization is that that's that's really good for like a snapshot piece of analysis, isn't it? That moment in time, almost like more of like a census style. But as you say, is that unless and gosh, you know, I I couldn't pretend to understand what it takes for Oracle or Sage or any of these companies to write these HR systems and all that sits behind it. But if you could store information in a blind way on the system, so it's attributed to an individual's code, but not visible to anybody who could access the system, you could then start to track pieces of information like this, because it is important to understand the journey that somebody has through a business, as you say, right the way from hiring to when they leave. And unless you can attribute that to an employee's code, you're only ever going to be able to get snapshots of information as opposed to the reality of their experience.
0: Yeah, it's a really good point, actually. Maybe this is where the blockchain can help us. <laughs> I <laughs> think so. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. so um, how do we equip boards then to get a bit more savvy, evidence-based uh, around diversity and inclusion? And also, you mentioned at the beginning of the interview about you know working with the senior leaders of an organisation to kind of just boost their confidence in the in the topic.
1: Yeah and and just starting with that one it's such an interesting place to begin isn't it about you know their own confidence and literally around you know a good functioning board that's able to provide brilliant scrutiny on any given topic so for not just about dni but how can they have inclusive and diverse conversations about any of the topics that come to their table, you need to have a board that's got a good team dynamic and a good behaviour towards one another. So if there isn't that respect and trust in the boardroom, how are they going to be able to table any conversation and get the best of their thinking out? So I think that this, this investment in their development as a group is something that whoever's got the responsibility to do that often an HRD will be given like the overview to to see that training through I think it's a really important investment, inclusive behaviours around the board table as opposed to the kind of behaviours that we see in films on TV and think, oh, my goodness, is that really what goes on up there? And then I think our job is really, you know, in in the best way possible is that, gosh, you know, when you look at some of like the, you know, the complexity of what you do, Toby, to like audit organisations and to help them to understand things we need to distill this down for boards so that they can understand what are the identifying factors of a company that they should be looking for. So what measurements should they be casting their eyes on? We should give guidance over the um, the cycles by which they should scrutinise that information. So we've already got the annual cycle now of the gender pay gap reporting as an example, but any company can then decide to extend that out and say, well, what other information and over what frequent should we be reviewing that makes sense for our organisation. But what I think has been really interesting as well because of doing the course and then a bit of my own research was that I hadn't also appreciated that the corporate governance code for listed companies was actually updated back in 2019 it was to talk about how vital it is that the board have got engagement with their workforce and other stakeholders and they actually advise that there are like three different methods to really get that temperature check so rather than just constantly measuring diversity but actually how can they understand about the inclusivity of their business better and they actually recommend that one of three things, or, or even better, all three, which is to have a director appointed from the workforce. So, they have a position on the board and there's somebody who's just out there doing their day-to-day job, but that they're equipped to sit around the table and share the views of the employee base. That you might have a formal workforce advisory panel, which is kind of like what we see with employee networks, often companies create like that network of networks, don't they? And then they can speak to the board and say, here's our feedback on topics. And then also that they might designate the role to one of the non-executive directors, because of course they're independent, to constantly research and gather opinion and make sure it's given over. So there's some quite clear guidance there on what it is that boards can do to listen better and get that temperature check on inclusion. I do wonder how many have put that into practice.
0: Yeah, because actually, I think one of my one of my clients, and I think this is kind of a, an example of some good practice, um, have created a, an employee advisory panel. So, one of the things that they look at is diversity and inclusion, but they also look at other things like well-being, career progression, the direction of the firm, and that kind of thing. But I think that's such a vital resource that the the chief exec and his senior leadership team. Can tap into, and it's really well structured and organised as well. So employees sit on this advisory board for six months, and then they rotate off, and then somebody else comes on. So they're always getting sort of fresh perspectives yeah. coming through. But they also make sure that that they're very conscious of making sure that that advisory board is diverse. Mm. So you know the leadership team can benefit from diverse perspectives and opinions and things like that so yeah yeah so nicola what what does inclusive growth mean to you because this, this is of course the inclusive show.
1: yeah absolutely <laughs> and um, well it's an interesting one because i kind of look at it from two perspectives kind of as you do as well which is i look at it from the growth of businesses and just how vital this is for any high-performing credible and ethical business of the future and so for me this point around a business being inclusive helps to mitigate risk and so it makes the business more sustainable it makes the business more professional and ultimately companies that can kind of do the things that we've been describing of like good analytics and really being comfortable with gathering insight to back up their intuition I think brings it to a different sophisticated level so I guess that that's what I when I think about like organizations that's what it means to me but when it means to me more personally is it it's the epitome for me about self-growth you know we all read all these help books and we're constantly thinking about lifelong learning and all of this kind of stuff but in actual fact this point around to be an inclusive person is to constantly be understanding the perspective of others, gathering different views of the world, understanding inequalities and working out like literally on a day-to-day basis what it is that we can do to just be one degree more inclusive, one degree more aware and conscious of other people's perspectives. I think that's the kind of golden thread for me is, yes, there's all these big change programs or like big light bulb moments that we can have but it's far more subtle i for me inclusive growth is just day to day working out yes i could do that differently yes i could think about the way i'm speaking to that person yes i could include that person more in my thinking in my life whatever it might be so yeah it's lovely to be asked the question because it gets really quite deep and it's actually very therapeutic to think it through as well
0: that's cool thank you i think that's like a really great way of looking at it and i like what you're saying about that kind of Taking that personal responsibility, because obviously I wrote the book Inclusive Growth, and it's really about how organisations can grow by being more inclusive and through diversity. But actually, we can grow as individuals as well, and I think that's really important because you know it's it's individuals in an organisation who are managers and team members. Um, so yeah, that's really cool. Um, before we go, what is your call to action for the person listening to to our interview today.
1: I think my call to action is something that's become like a little bit more into my mindset over the last like 18 months or so. It's like been a bit of a, "Huh, this is definitely something that I need to do." And this is forming a lot of the conversations with companies that I'm speaking to, which is if you aren't deliberately and consciously being inclusive, you're probably not. And I and I don't mean that that means that anybody who's not thinking about this is horrible and it's all going wrong. But at the same time, this point around well, people worrying about what's unconscious to them. I'm just trying to get people to flip it around and say, actually, yes, you should be worried and trying to pick up on some of the unconscious biases you may have. But actually, a far better way is to be proactive and think about how you can be consciously inclusive because being passive isn't going to work. And it's nobody else's job to DNI you. Um, You've got to do it for yourself. And so, therefore, that would be my call to arms. Be deliberately and consciously inclusive.
0: Yeah, I think that's really good because I do. Obviously, I do unconscious bias training and unconscious bias training, I think, has got a bit of a bad reputation and I I do actually say in the training that I do that unconscious bias training doesn't work because you know training is not en- enough to change unconscious behaviors you know because we're mm. we're born with our biases in, in terms of the way that our brains are, are wired and then through the impact of social conditioning and things like that but yeah I often talk to my clients about how can we flip it how can we take a bias so like something like you know we have a similarity bias like we like to hang out with people that are just like ourselves. And so, you know, you can be conscious about that. You can say, now that I know that my default is to kind of want to hang out with people that are just like me, I can consciously kind of just chat to, reach out to people that I don't normally reach out to. And I don't I don't know if I should admit this, but like when I go to conferences and you know you've got that kind of like big networking thing like in the middle of the day and everyone's in this like massive Room, I find that quite terrifying, to be honest with you, um, because, yeah, I'm quite introverted. But um, I do this thing with myself where I, I, I try and spot somebody in the room who scares me and then I will go up and talk to them. And it's, yeah, I don't know if I should have admitted that or not, but it's, uh, yeah, it does do the trick sometimes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so if you walk up to me in a room, then I'll know what's
0: going on. <laughs> yeah, if I come up to you, then you've, you're obviously terrifying. I'm terrifying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But do you know what? I It's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because like you say, can, do you want to admit to it? But it is, it's a really good example of challenging our own emotions, isn't it? So much of this is what you feel, either fear or Um, nervousness or what and then on the positive side of things that warmth that ease and so exactly if you can um, challenge yourself to think differently about who you gravitate towards and just switch it up a little bit it's amazing it sounds a bit cheesy almost doesn't it to kind of go oh that's what I do but it's I think it genuinely works.
0: Yeah it does it does work. Mm. Um, Nicola thank you ever so much for joining me on the show today if somebody wants to get in touch with you what's the best way of doing that?
1: oh thank you. and thank you so much for inviting me on today i mean we always love talking so um, it's lovely to be able to do it and hopefully other people find it interesting um well yeah so um my i mean you know i've set up my consultancy but it is just me but one of the nice things when you do that is you get to think about an organization name and so because i work in the field of ethics as well um my company's called good work life that's what we're all trying to do is have a better and good working life and so my website's goodworklife.com dot uk and um as you introduced at the start I'm Nicola Paul and you can find me on LinkedIn as well.
0: Brilliant. Well thank you Nicola it's lovely to see you and uh I can't wait to catch up with you in another in a Starbucks and having a, a, <laughs> a, a chai latte with you. That would be <laughs>
1: perfect. <laughs> cool.
0: Brilliant. Um and thank you for tuning into uh into this episode with Nicola today. I hope you found it interesting and uh, please do check out all of the other episodes on all of the the major podcasting platforms. And I look forward to seeing you at the next episode that's coming up shortly. Until then, take care and thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Inclusive Growth Show. For further information and resources from Toby and his team, head on over to our website at milden.co.uk.